And now please turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 8 and verse 22. You can find this on page 287 in the Pew Bible. I'm going to be reading from the New King James translation, which is the same translation you have there in the Pew. Our congregation has been going through a series on the book of Judges, so if you're just dropping in, um, realize that this, I think, is the eighth or ninth sermon we've had on the life of Gideon. Uh, Gideon is the first judge in the book in which there's a lot more detail given. In fact, this is the longest uh, portion of the whole book, and it is sort of a turning point because up until this point, the, the judges have been presented to us pretty much without flaw or weakness, and uh, now at Gideon's uh, story, we see a judge who's quite a complicated character. It's been quite a process to get him to the point where he was able to lead uh, the people of Israel uh, against their enemies, the Midianites, and to um, push this group of 130,000 um, out, uh, out of their land that have been oppressing them. Uh, so now we come to the conclusion of, uh, of Gideon's life. And so we'll read from verse 22 uh, to the end of the chapter. Uh, and again, I will say that Gideon is a complicated character. I'm, I'm guessing most of you children uh, in your children's Bible uh, don't have this part of the Gideon story. It usually ends with uh, the great triumph that we would have looked at last time. Uh, but we need uh, the whole story. And so let's give attention to God's word. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, both you and your son, and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they answered, we will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes, which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains that were around the camel's necks. And Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city, Ophrah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house. Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel, so that they lifted their heads no more. And the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Then Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives, and his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son whose name he called Abimelech. Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. So it was, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal bereath their god. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the house of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in accordance with the good that he had done for Israel. And there will end the reading of God's word. May he bless his word to us as we consider it together this morning. 
Well, one of my uh, late father-in-law's heroes uh, was the conservative politician Barry Goldwater. Uh, Goldwater was a senator from Arizona who uh, had the Republican nomination for the presidency in 1964. It was defeated uh, by Lyndon Johnson. And even though Goldwater uh, was defeated soundly in that election, uh, it's thought that he sort of paved the way for the modern uh, conservative movement and, and later Ronald Reagan uh, that came out of that. And it was at the end of Goldwater's life uh, where he came out in support of some uh, ideas that my father-in-law, my late father-in-law, had a lot of trouble with. Uh, so Goldwater advocated for uh, gay marriage, for abortion on demand, for the legalization of drugs. And, uh, and my, my father-in-law was just sort of heartbroken by that. And he said, you know, it's, it's so easy for a man to compromise later in his life. People get to him. He wants to be popular. Uh, he wants uh, people to like him. And, uh, and so he maybe wants to be comfortable. And so, uh, and so he doesn't finish well. And, and whether that's true or not in this particular case, it is certainly true that it is hard to finish well to finish your life well. It's also true that it's incredibly important how we finish. Uh, the Bible's full of stories of people who started well but finished poorly. A number of the kings of Judah, Asa, Joash, Uzziah, Hezekiah, each one of them started with a great zeal for God and then at the end of their life fell in very, very significant ways. Even Moses, who was the great leader of God's people, right, was not allowed to go into the promised land because of an indiscretion late in his life. Finishing well is difficult, but it is so important because it impacts the people who come after you. And one of the things we see in this passage is that our lives leave a legacy, whether that is a legacy for good or for ill. And uh, if we are faithful, we can set people up that follow us uh, for success and service. And if we fail, we can often set people up who follow us for stumbling and for difficulty. And as we contemplate here Gideon's life and example, it's a reminder to you how desperately each one of us needs the only true hero of the faith, which is Jesus Christ, the one who never stumbled and was perfectly faithful. And so that's the point I want us to see as we look at the passage. It's in the outline that's in the bulletin. If you're going to leave a legacy of blessing to those who come after you, you must learn to lead on the only true hero of the faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. And children, if you're going to draw a picture for me today, please, you could draw this uh, this group who's asking Gideon to do something for them. And, uh, and what does Gideon say? And what does that teach us about Gideon? Well, if you'd like to follow along, there's an outline uh, in your bulletin. The first thing I want us to notice is that Gideon was a hero of the faith. Looking in verses 22 and 23. At the end of this great victory, when Gideon, with just 300 men, uh, led this um, uh, led this great uh, battle that ended up in victory and the Midianites being removed from their land. It says in verse 22 that the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us. And the language here in the, in the original is kind of interesting because it's, 
It's they said, but it's, it's actually literally the man of Israel. And what you have here is the people speaking as one man. They're, they're uni- and, and the point is they're unified, which is unusual. At this point in their history, they are a loose confederation of tribes that really don't coordinate well. You remember there was an argument between some of the tribes over who was going to get the credit in the midst of the battle. And, and so this is a, a sign of how much they appreciate Gideon, that they want Gideon to be their king. They're willing to unite under this man Gideon. And it's not just Gideon. You see in the second part of verse 22, rule over us both you and your son and your grandson also. They're willing to make him a royal dynasty. And this is the first time this concept is seen in the book of Judges, but we'll see it comes up uh, more throughout the book, um, this, this concept of dynasty. So uh, these, these men have tremendous esteem for Gideon, and they're grateful for what he's done. As it says at the end of verse 22, you delivered us from the hand of Midian. And recognize that one of the whole themes of the book of Judges is the problem of not having a, a king. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. And so it might seem to us, well, this seems like a good uh, request. This is the right thing for them to to, to do, right? Because after all, it's said in the law of Moses that they should have a king. And I gave you an example of this in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 and 15. These cross-references are also in the bulletin. When you come to the land, Moses wrote to them, in which the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set as a king over you and you may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So the the desire for the king is actually a good thing. Gordon Ketty commenting on this says, it's one thing for the Lord though to give you a king, to give a king to his people, but for his people to make someone their king is spiritual revolution. Well, that might be overstating the case, but it seems that Gideon understands that while this may be a noble sentiment, uh, now is not the time. It could even be that he knows uh, from the word of God in in the book of Genesis that God had told um, through Jacob that uh, the the scepter would not depart from Judah, that the, the king was supposed to come from the tribe of Judah. It's possible that that's even floating around in the background. Whatever it is, Gideon answers in verse 23, I will not rule over you, nor my son, the Lord shall rule over you. He understands God is the one who won the victory, and if you want a king who can win your victories for you, you better make it God. One commentator calls Gideon's response a model of noble unselfishness. And, And if we recognize the great temptation that he would have been facing at this point, Uh, It really is remarkable that he turns down this offer. And I think in this way, we really do need to understand Gideon is a hero of the faith. He accomplished amazing things with the help of God. And here, when he could have taken on the kingship as a dynasty for him and his descendants, he turns it down. Hebrews 11 confirms this, uh, verses 32 and following. What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon. He's listed first. And Barak and Samson and Jephthah, those are other judges, and also David and Samuel and the prophets, 
who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousnesses, righteousness, excuse me, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. And this, this seems to be a particular description of Gideon. Out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. And it's easy for us to forget when we get to this final passage what Gideon was, but he genuinely was a hero of the faith. Now, in our own nation's history, uh, our, our independence couldn't have been won without George Washington and his contributions. And at the end of the Revolutionary War, he could have had anything he wanted. Uh, they, they were willing to make him the permanent commander. He, not a good idea. He, he resigned his commission, uh, commanding the army. Uh, one of his, uh, his uh, soldiers wrote to him that he should consider being the king, uh, that a king, king could work uh, with a man like Washington. Uh, he scoffed at that as ridiculous. He wasn't going to be the king. And after two terms as president, he retired and went back to private life. You realize the reason that we never had a president more than eight years wasn't because of anything in the law. It was simply because of Washington's example. That was it until FDR. And that's when an amendment was added when it was realized, well, I guess you could stay on longer if you wanted to. But that, that's how profound his approach was. He was a national hero, and yet he resisted the temptation uh, to make himself some kind of a king. And Gideon was a national hero also. God had raised him up to be such a person. And I think it's okay for us to celebrate this fact that God does work in the lives of humble people and use them in powerful ways. Uh, Germaine uh, just shared with me, she has a friend serving in as a missionary in India right now. And there's a lot of ethnic violence. Well, it's real, and if you look in your newspaper, it'll say it's tribal violence, but it's actually religious violence. And last week, uh, over 60 people were killed uh, in villages just because they were Christians and churches are being burned. And there, Germaine's friend and her husband are right in the middle of all that, seeking to serve the Lord. And I thank God that he continues to raise up, in a sense, heroes of the faith today. So Gideon really was a hero of the faith. But secondly, we see here, it's not enough to perform well in a crisis. You need to be faithful in everyday life. Now we'll skip over the, mo- the, the matter of this ephod for a moment, down to verse 28, um, which tells us that uh, what Gideon did sort of after uh, his successes. So it tells us in verse 28 that Midian was subdued Uh, They didn't lift their heads anymore, and the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. So the land has rest. We've seen this before in the book of Judges. In fact, this is the last time we're going to see it, but this again confirms what Gideon did for them. And in verse 29, we see that Gideon, it mentions his other name here, Jerubbaal, the one who contends with Baal, uh, retires. He dwelt in his own house, so he's sort of retiring to private life. This is Washington going back to Mount Vernon. But now here's where it gets sticky because it says in verse 30 that he had 70 sons who were his own offspring and many wives. Uh, So he must have had a harem of at least 10 wives. Uh, Some commentators estimate 14 
wives. So although he turned down being the king, what's he doing? He's going back to private life and he's starting to live like he's a king. This is exactly how a Near Eastern king would have lived. So he, he, in his private life, he's going to live this way even though he's not actually the king. So he has a harem, he has many children. Uh, furthermore, in verse 31, he has a concubine who bears him a son, and he calls the son Abimelech, or Abimelech, which means my father the king. Uh, that's that's Ab- Ab- Abimelech's name. And so you see here that in his private life, uh, Gideon is, is starting to struggle. And uh, it, it's a great example of that you have a person doing great deeds uh, in time of crisis, and then when it comes to just living out ordinary life, there's a tremendous struggle. Uh, Arthur Kundal, speaking about this, says, perhaps it's easier to honor God in some courageous action in the limelight of a time of national emergency than it is to honor him consistently in the ordinary, everyday life, which requires a different kind of courage. And we actually see this all the time. You see soldiers who accomplish great feats of heroism and selflessness on the battlefield and then come back to private life and, and they can't uh, love their wife and children in a healthy way. We see uh, professional athletes, the same thing. Uh, they have tremendous self-control and discipline and, and yet we see them exploding in fits of rage that cause all kinds of problems in their daily life. Uh, I remember an experience Amy and I had when we were new parents and we had our our oldest daughter, who was a baby at that time, and the car we were driving, the bearings froze up, and so the, you know, you're driving along and just having one of the front wheels seize on you is a, on a highway is a pretty scary thing, and we were able to get the car off the road, but it was late. It was uh, the night before Thanksgiving. We were in Kentucky. We have this little baby, uh, but I remember not being the least bit worried about it. I mean, it was an inconvenience, but we just, well, we got to get out. I mean, it's pretty clear. We got the baby in the, in the uh, carrier, and we just start walking down the highway. And, and by God's grace, someone stopped and gave us a ride up to the next exit, and we were able to get it sorted out. And I don't remember being terribly uh, anxious in, in the whole situation. And yet, just last week, I'm driving with my 14-year-old, and the red light comes on, and I don't want it, and I'm yelling out loud, totally losing my mind. And, and maybe the, truth, the same thing happens in your own experience. Like When something really difficult happens, you sort of know, okay, this is from the Lord. I, I, I've got to really focus on God. But then in the everyday things that happen in life, you, just, you lose your mind on things that, that you shouldn't be. And, and this is often the way it is. It's a different kind of courage that it takes to live faithfully day after day. And, uh, and that's the kind of faithfulness you and I have been called to. Again, quoting from Arthur Kundal, he said, Gideon, who came through the test of adversity with flying colors, was not the first nor the last to be less successful in the test of prosperity. And uh, we want, by God's grace, to be faithful in difficult circumstances, but even more so in the everyday ordinary lives that God has called us to live, going up, getting up, going to work, uh, dealing with our children, uh, dealing with running a home or aging relatives and all the challenges these things bring, uh, but doing that faithfully, trusting the Lord. 
So it's not enough just to perform well in a crisis. We need to be faithful in everyday life. Thirdly, this text reminds you that you will leave a legacy that's going to impact those who come after you. You can't help but leave some kind of a legacy. And uh, we're going to look at verses 24 to 27 here, which really show uh, Gideon's sort of undoing. He fumbles the ball kind of on the one-yard line here uh, of getting through his life. So although he doesn't agree to be the king, he says in verse 24, I will make a request of you. He asks uh, for their earrings. And just a note on this last statement in verse 24, because they were Ishmaelites, this is... um, the Ishmaelites were kind of the, the, the original caravan traders, the nomadic traders. So all this is saying isn't a, a genealogical thing about the Midianites, but just this was their way of life. They were nomadic peoples who were caravan traders, and so they had a lot of gold on them. So this is why Gideon asked, just for the earrings, that's all. And they, they throw in these other things as well, uh, some robes and some ornamentation from uh, the kings of Midian. And the people are only too happy to do this because they're so grateful for what Gideon has done for them. Now, what's interesting is the amount of gold that's collected. This translates to about 43 pounds of gold. So it's a significant amount. And it creates a bit of a conundrum then what's going on in verse 27, where it says Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city. And uh, if you look in your Bibles, an ephod is a piece of, uh, of clothing that the priest was to wear. And uh, it, 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 it seems like, as we look in the book of Exodus, that there was also some special ornamentation that went on the ephod that could be used to inquire of God, the umim and the thumim that you've probably heard of before. So, um, so, so we're not entirely sure what's going on, but the fact that he uses 43 pounds of gold to make it, that doesn't sound like a piece of clothing. Some people think that what he did was take that gold and to fashion it into some kind of a figure and then put a robe on the figure or something like that. And probably, given what we know about Gideon, that the idea was this is going to be some kind of a memorial to commemorate the great victory that they've won. But also, perhaps, a means where we could inquire of God to know what's going on. And notice that he set this up in his home city. That's where God appeared to him. That's where God uh, did the miracle with the fleeces and answered Gideon's questions. So Gideon here seems to be thinking, let's keep this going. One commentator calls this thing Gideon's permanent fleece. So I've got a way he can always ask God. We can inquire of the Lord. And probably what's going on here isn't that he's trying to worship a false god but that he's trying to worship or or to acquire information from the true God falsely, which is also very problematic because verse 27 uh, tells us the outcome when he sets this up. It says, all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house. It was a trap because people were coming there and uh, they were worshiping or doing something that was inappropriate Uh, something that perhaps he thought would just be a way to commemorate the victory, a way to get get information from God if they needed it. But note how similar this is to what what Aaron did in the book of Exodus. I put this in your outline, Exodus 32, where Aaron says to the people of God, break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. 
So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears. They brought them to Aaron and he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it uh, with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. And then he said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Right, again, it wasn't telling them go worship a false God. He was saying uh, worship the true God, but do it in this false manner. And it seems like this is what Gideon had done. And so inadvertently, he sets a snare for those who would come after him. And I think that really is the question we need to ask ourselves. How are we inadvertently setting snares for the people who may come after us? In our priorities as a family and as individuals and the things that we give ourselves to, you know, what are we showing the people who are coming after us about what's, what's really important in our lives? Because uh, we can say one thing, but I guarantee you your kids are watching what you're actually doing. And it's so easy for us to uh, inadvertently, not intentionally, uh, be showing our kids uh, things that are not helpful for them. And, um, and this is a reminder of this text, that we will leave a legacy. You will leave a, a legacy. It's impossible that your life is not going to impact the people that follow you in some way. And, and the question is, is that legacy going to be one that points people toward Christ, that equips them and helps them in some way, or is it going to be turning people away from Christ, something that damages them in some way? And one of the things I give thanks for is the number of people in our congregation that we've seen uh, living the ordinary but faithful Christian life all the way to the end. What a blessing to see that happen and to be encouraged and to know that that's, that's impacting those who are coming afterward. I think we, we saw that in some of uh, the testimony that we just heard. Uh, what, a, what a beautiful thing uh, to have a young person share. And, um, and my guess is uh, some of the younger young people who are here uh, will, will remember this and, and think about this as well. And you see what a, what a blessing it is to be a part of a church family, recognizing that uh, we leave a legacy that will help those who come behind if we're faithful. But fourthly, then, we are, we are reminded from this text that no matter what legacy you leave, the people coming after you still stand in need of God's grace. So verses 32 to 35 kind of describe what happens after Gideon dies. Verse 32, he dies at a good old age. He's buried in honor uh, in his own country. But immediately... Verse uh, 33 says, as soon as he was dead, the children of Israel played the harlot with a bail. So uh, his little idol, whatever it was, uh, was a starting point, but they just launch into full-fledged Baal worship again. And um, verse 34, thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God. God was the one who delivered them, and they're forgetting God, they're back to worshiping Baal. And the whole reason that, that Gideon was called, that's why again it mentions his his other name, Jerubbaal, is to contend with Baal and to get the people off Baal worship. And so in essence, Gideon here has undone uh, everything that his ministry, his life 
was meant to do. But it is interesting that it doesn't happen until he dies. And so what that means is his presence was a restraining force uh, in, that, in that community, in, in, their, in their culture. So even late into age, as long as he was around, they weren't going full-fledged into this idolatry. But as soon as he was off the scene, um, there they go. The people degenerate quickly. And I think this is significant because it reminds us that whatever good or bad Gideon did in his life, he could not ultimately change the hearts of the people, especially the people who were coming after him. He could not ensure their salvation. And it's a reminder that God's grace has to be there for every generation. There's no generation that stands in their own righteousness or in their own faithfulness. It's always utterly and completely dependent upon God's grace. One of the uh, topics that's getting attention in our uh, broader society right now are these negotiations on on the debt ceiling. And uh, what's going to happen if we if we default or what's going to happen if we don't stop uh, spending money at the rate we are. I read that we now owe $250,000 for each taxpayer uh, in the nation. Uh, $250,000 and obviously the numbers going up and up. And one thing that's quite clear is that the people running our country don't really care uh, about the future after they're gone. That's somebody else's problem. And by the future, I mean when they're out of office, probably. Uh, And the Bible has a very different time frame. The Bible wants us to think about the future. The Bible wants us to think about those who are coming after us, in our families, in our church, in our denomination, in the world. But it also reminds us that no matter how faithful we are today, those people coming after us have to trust the Lord. They are going to be dependent on the grace of God and on his spirit, which reminds us that the one thing above all else we need to be doing is praying, praying for those who are coming after us, that God would be at work among them and that they would be faithful. Uh, Our session is trying to wrestle with uh, the data that's coming in, you know, how, how do we try to expand our facility and we're working on a plan to do it here. We're looking at what it might look like if we were somewhere else. And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, I don't want to spend any money or do anything if we don't know for sure that this church is going to be faithful and honoring God you know, in 100 years. Why, why waste the time and the effort? But guess what? I can't know that. You can't know that. Nobody can know that. Our faith has to be in the Lord and in him alone and to trust that he's going to work uh, because he needs to work in every generation. We need to be faithful, but even if we are, we need to recognize God has to work. God's grace has to be there for the people coming after us. So finally, then this encourages you to put your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, to learn to lean on the Lord Jesus Christ as the only true hero of the faith. Gideon was like every other human judge in this book. He died. He died and was not able to do anything after he died. He was not the savior that we need. 
Jesus Christ is the Savior we need. We need a Savior who always lives to make intercession, who is there to fight your battles for you, who will never lead you astray, who will not go part way and then uh, make a colossal mistake like Gideon did. A Savior who leaves you with a legacy of faithfulness and hope, the one who lived and died in your place, who rose from the dead and lives forevermore. That's the kind of Savior that we need. Every one of the heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11 has some defect. Jesus is the only true hero of the faith, the one without any defect at all, the one who was faithful in extraordinary circumstances and in ordinary circumstances. And if you're going to live that kind of a life, you need to lean every day, every moment on the true hero of the faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. If any of us are to leave a legacy that will honor God, we have to lean on the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been reading a book uh, by Ed Welch on anxiety. Ed Welch is a Christian counselor. And one of the last chapters was about love. And Ed Welch himself struggles a lot, has struggled a lot with anxiety. And he said that uh, He used to ask his wife a lot, you know, I don't know why you love me, sort of like, why do you love me or do you love me? And finally, his wife got so frustrated, she said, look, I love you, okay? Why is that so hard for you to believe? And he said it was very profound because she didn't try to explain or to give reasons. And it was clear, there were It wasn't based on any reasons. It was based on who she was. And she had made the decision that she was going to love him. And he said she was actually quite good at loving me. So so I knew that wasn't an issue. And he said, what a picture of God's love for us, of Christ's love for us. I just love you. I don't love you because... Because if that were the case, then it would be easy for us to see how we didn't deserve his love and maybe we would lose his love. But he doesn't love you because of anything in you. He loves you because of him. And that's the only way you will leave a legacy that will bless the people after you. Because Jesus has committed himself to giving you a legacy, to loving you, and to enabling you to be faithful while you are here. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 8, who will also, Jesus it's talking about, will confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who will be faithful to the end. And that's the hope that you and I have. That's the only way we can leave a legacy behind. You know, we we love uh, Amy's dad. Um, He's gone to be with the Lord. And we chuckle about his uh, super conservative politics. And, but that's, that's really not what we appreciate about him. Um, we really appreciate that um, when he came home, he'd stopped kidney dialysis. And we knew he had about two weeks to live. And he was there in the house with us. Uh, that he wanted to worship God with us every night He wanted to encourage our young children at that time to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and to follow him. That's that's finishing strong all the way to the the tape, right? The, The runners are supposed to run through the tape, and he ran all the way through the tape. 
and what a profound impact on, on my family and on the people he, he knew. And that's what this passage is encouraging in us. Gideon, Gideon didn't do it. And, and that's sad, uh, but that only is meant to point you, right? We're never supposed to venerate men. That's meant to point you to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who did do it. And he ran through the tape when that meant going through the cross. And he finished the work. And that's our hope for being able to be faithful in extreme circumstances, in ordinary circumstances, all the way to the end, that we might leave a legacy that would bless the people who come behind us. Let's uh, praise the Lord and give him thanks. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your good word, that, that even as we read uh, the end of this complicated figure who did great things in service to you and your people, and yet who also made some very bad decisions at the end of his life, Lord, we thank you that you use this to point us to the, the one true hero of the faith, the one that we really need, the one who finished the work, uh, the one who left off, uh, us a legacy so that we might also uh, leave those who follow us a legacy, and that is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would give us the grace and the faith we need to deal with whatever challenges are in front of us right now, uh, that we would run our race faithfully all the way to the end, and that we would indeed uh, leave a heritage for those who come after us, uh, that they would be blessed. And we pray, Lord, that you would build us all up in faith and love for our Savior, Jesus Christ. For we pray these things in his name. Amen. And let's now sing our praise back to the Lord from Psalm 23, Selection C. The Lord is my shepherd. This is about the Lord Jesus Christ, the only true hero of the faith. He is the one who is with us and blesses us forever. Uh, the end of this says what's the outcome is that we would be in the house of the Lord forever. Let's stand and we'll sing Psalm 23C together. That we may have even abused this passage and used it uh, to seek uh, guidance by obscure providences that really uh, abuse um, the doctrine of providence. We pray rather, Lord, that you would help us to see what is here, a man desperate to have his faith assured and strengthened, who genuinely was needy and who sought help from you in the only way he knew how. And Lord, we pray that you would help us uh, to understand that you are the same God who condescends to strengthen our faith and that you would show us how near you are to us that we don't have to ask for some miraculous sign. We, we merely need to ask for faith. We need to ask that you would give us a clearer view of our Savior Lord, the evidence that you, uh, you are the all-powerful God who does the impossible on behalf of his people is the Lord Jesus, the Lord who hung on the cross, uh, taking our sins upon himself, giving his life uh, for us so that we could live forever. That's, that's all we need. We confess that it's so easy uh, for us to lose sight of that. Uh, we pray, Lord, when uh, we reach our moment of truth, we come to these episodes where our faith may waver, that you would help us to turn uh, to you and to do so in hope and in faith that you would show us 
again our Savior and give us a clearer picture of the Lord Jesus that we might have the faith that we need. And Lord, if there, if there are any here who do not yet know you, how we pray that you would open our eyes and show us the Savior, that we would see how compassionate and loving he is, and that we would find salvation in him and know that we can live our life uh, with him uh, working on our behalf at all times. Lord, help us even in the coming week as we face various moments of truth in our own lives, that you would guide us and be with us and help us to see our Lord. For we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. And now we'll sing back in praise to the Lord from Psalm 113, Selection C. Uh, I've been advised this is not a familiar tune to us, so uh, we'll uh, do our best to uh, follow along and sing this. Uh, Notice, though, it is a psalm of praise, praise the Lord, and then it acknowledges that God is the one who is on high. In verse 3, stanza 3, sorry, of of the music, who is like our God alone high in heaven is the Lord enthroned Uh, but then see what he does he condescends to know things in heaven and earth below and then the last two stanzas talk about how he takes the needy and he lifts us out of the dust and raises us up Uh, this is exactly what God was doing for Gideon and it's what he does for you and for me the God of all power condescends then to lift us up with him let's sing our praise to him let's stand and sing